Who do you think designed the systems of creation that scientists have been studying for years under microscopes, only to lose themselves in the depths of increasing complexity? Who do you think thought up the miracle that is the human body? A miracle that any medical doctor will tell you far surpasses human technology. Who do you think set up solar systems and galaxies and black holes and dark matter and all the things that make the smartest people who have ever lived scratch their heads in confusion? The Bible seems to think that Jesus did. And if the Bible is right, well then just how intelligent do you think Jesus must be? Welcome to the Follower Podcast, a place where we're learning to follow Jesus to the depths of His heart and the ends of the earth. I'm your host, Matthew Lewis, and I'm so glad you've joined us on the journey. Well, welcome back to the Follower Podcast, friends. It's always good to be in your ears. In this last episode of our series called Return. Now, if you're just joining us, we've been exploring a good old-fashioned idea called repentance through the lens of Psalm 27.4. We've covered a lot of ground on the journey, so if you haven't listened to the other episodes, it might be a good idea to pause this one and start from the beginning. If you have been with us um, in this journey, well, then here's a brief reminder of where we've been and what we've been talking about. To begin, we started off by discussing the opportunity of our present moment as a kind of gap between idols. We recognized that many of the things we had put our faith in had actually fallen, that uh, in the words of Daniel, they had been uh, measured on the scales or tried and found wanting, and that this was actually a prime opportunity for us to return to God. We then looked at the concept of a, of a one-thing spirituality. We acknowledged, sadly, that while we do want God at the deepest level or at a, div, of a, a level of divine longing, uh, kind of a place of cosmic engineering that I call the ache, we also don't want God at a more superficial level. And we live under the tyranny of uh, what we call disordered desires, which explains why so many of us can relate to a guy called Paul in the Bible when he talks about doing what he doesn't want to do and not doing what he does want to do. It would appear, uh, just by my own experience and probably yours if you're honest with yourself, that our deepest longings are not our strongest longings. Now, uh, recognizing this, we said that it wasn't enough to just believe the right thing. Just saying we want something doesn't make us actually want it. Instead, we had to learn to love the right thing because we are what we love. And in this, we considered God's invitation to let him search our hearts and lead us in the way everlasting. We, we know that we want to want God, but we, we need God to help us actually <laughs> want him. And the first step in this direction of, of actually learning to want God, what God really is, not what we would have him be, began by understanding the necessary hiddenness of God. We spoke about how, how God cannot ravish us, how he can only woo us, and, and what it means for us in terms of having to seek God. Intimacy, it turns out, is not automatic. And while the gospel or the message of Christianity is opposed to earning, it is not opposed to effort. Now, counterintuitively, 
we also found that that when we start seeking God, he's not actually that hard to find. <laughs> we we chose uh, to slow down and dwell in God's presence. And as we did this, we discovered that his presence was there in plenty, flooding the proverbial banks of every moment that we inhabit. And finally, in the last episode, we spoke about beauty. We understood that the point of making space for God in our abiding is to be overcome by God in our beholding. I'll say that again. The point of making space for God in our abiding is to be overcome by God in our beholding. We, we spoke about the fact that it is our greatest joy and privilege to gaze at God, not with fleeting glances or fits and starts, but with the kind of gaze that drowns out everything around us and captures us up in the beauty of who God is. And so this has been our journey of repentance. And, and this is not a tidy theological sort of step-by-step program. If you're listening in, no matter what your perspectives are, whether you're kind of just exploring Jesus or whether you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, it's important to understand you can't, you can't boil this down into one-size-fits-all approaches. The human soul is far too mysterious for this kind of pragmatism. Instead, these are signposts on a journey that point us in the right direction. Signposts that we will almost certainly have to come back to again and again and again as we follow Jesus to the depths of his heart. And so we want to move on to our final signpost. But before we do that, we have a question from Amy Din, all the way from Himalayas. <laughs> I just, uh, I mean, when I, even when I read that, I just get so excited about the breadth of this community. I mean, we've had questions from London and China and South Africa, both KZN and Cape Town. And now a question from the Himalayas. I love it. I love it. I love it. Anyway. Uh, Here's your question, Amy, and thank you for asking it. And uh, she writes this. If beholding and gazing upon the beauty of God calls us to the best version of ourselves or changes and reorients our lives, then should our sermons be more primarily focused on the person of Christ, his beauty and worthiness? Since what you behold is what you become, then should there be more of an emphasis and space created to behold and gaze. Could this be the very thing that we are missing and lacking in our Christianity here in the West? So I want to say, Amy, thank you for this question. It's an excellent question. And and I think when I listen to it, there are two things that I want to pull out. The first is the content of our message. And the second is the medium of our message. Now, I'll probably repeat some of what I've already said in this series, but the fact that you're asking this means that other people are probably asking it too, and so it's worth repeating. Um, Let's start with the content of our message, okay? Uh, When we talk about the content of our message as Christian people, and for those of you who, again, who are not necessarily followers of Jesus, but just looking in, when Amy uses the word sermon, she's referring to something that, that Christians have, which is basically a talk or a speech, 
Um, and uh, usually if you've gone to a church or any kind of uh, a religious Christian religious gathering, uh, you would have heard uh, maybe a priest or a pastor or a leader kind of get up and give a, a talk or a speech. And we call those sermons, right? Uh, these are preachers and they, and they preach these messages. Now, if you're not familiar with the Christian world, what, what you wouldn't know, but which is very true, is that not all churches do sermons the same. <laughs> In the same way that not all churches do gatherings the same. Uh, if you've only ever been to one kind of church, that might amaze you. And if you've never been to any church, that, that might be interesting to you, is that different churches do things very differently. And uh, my particular perspective, and I hope it's helpful for you, whether you're a follower or someone who's just looking in, is that I think there's value to be found in all expressions of the church. I think if you listen to one of our previous episodes, this is a really, really big table uh, of a really crazy family and the key is that Jesus is in our midst. <laughs> okay, so just to put you in the loop there, if you're wondering what a sermon is, um, that's what we're talking about, a speech. Um, now, Amy, to your question, when we talk about the content of our message or uh, or should our sermons, messages, speeches be more focused on the person of Jesus? I think you're hitting on a very important point. And the first thing we need to acknowledge when we speak about these things is that preaching or teaching or sermons, uh, this is a very sacred task. It's a task that many people have given a lot of thought to for a very long time. And uh, so the simple answer to your question, Amy, is yes, right? We, we need less us and more Jesus in our preaching, particularly in the West. But, but with that said, as with pretty much everything, I think there is always tension and nuance to be managed here. For one thing, you have to ask who is preaching to whom. So if I'm the, the Apostle Peter, for example, under the power of the Holy Spirit in front of a captive audience at Pentecost, I'm going to preach in a certain kind of way. I'm going to be strong. It's going to be clear. It's going to call people to repentance while disrupting apathy, arrogance, and sin. It's, uh, it's going to be like switching on a bright light in a dark room as people cover their eyes to adjust to the new normal. However, if I'm Paul speaking to the church in Ephesus, my message might be gentler, more tender, exhorting people to grow down deep into the love of God, for example. Or if I'm writing to Timothy about church governance, my message might be more administrative. Or if I'm speaking on Mars Hill to the Greeks, I might take a more philosophical, apologetic approach. So before we make any blanket statements about what more in our sermons would look like, Amy, we have to think about this on a case-by-case basis. A good pastor preaches differently to a good evangelist, who preaches differently to a good teacher, who preaches differently to a good prophet or apostle. But we need all of these functions to equip the saints for ministry. A pastor, for example, who has been entrusted with the ongoing care of people and is concerned with long-term sustainability and maturity, this person can't preach hard-hitting evangelistic sermons every single Sunday. If they do, they're going to exhaust the people and possibly grow the church in size, but not necessarily in depth. So when you're preaching for the long game, you have to have a balanced diet in mind. However, a good pastor also recognizes the need for evangelists who are made for the moment as they speak to pierce the heart or 
prophets who ache for holiness and most often discipline and exhort, or teachers who guard doctrine and preach to mature and educate, or apostles whose mandate is movement as they mobilize, release, and pioneer. Each one must find their place in the broader body. Now, to your question, what I've, what I've observed in the West, and this might be where your question comes from, is a weakness that is more the problem of individualism, corporate leadership structures, and narrow theologies of church than it is about the content of preaching. Now, I'm not saying the content of preaching is not a problem. It is definitely a topic worth discussing, perhaps in another episode. But when it comes to this particular question, it's just uh, what I see in so many churches is, is that they are personality or gift driven. And as such, I see congregations, gatherings of Christians that are molded around individuals. And as a result, whatever the leader is in their leaning, the church becomes that. So two unhealthy examples uh, of this that stand out to me are the pastoral and apostolic imbalances. Um, the pastoral imbalance, for example, expresses itself in a soft kind of prosperity gospel that's almost entirely therapeutic, human-centered, and self-serving in nature. Uh, the apostolic imbalance expresses itself in an often unacknowledged, but all the more real, sadly, ego-driven agenda that is entrepreneurial in its gospel and uses people as tools in the work of basically franchise expansion. Okay. Um, now, we could obviously give examples of other imbalances here as well, but for the sake of time, I think you get the point. So when you ask, do we need more Jesus in our sermons? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and yes, this is even worth a specific topic, but uh, maybe a question under the question, Amy, is uh, how do we get more Jesus in our sermons? And I think the answer is not alone. I think we follow Jesus and share him with the world in a team, in a collective. I think Christianity is a team sport, right? And no individual preaches a perfect gospel. It takes a village to raise a child. Now, as for the second part of your question, do we need to create more space to behold and gaze? Again, simple answer, yes, of course. But the nuance here it would be to ask in which context. It is true to say that there are certain expressions of church in the West that have been influenced heavily by enlightenment and industrial thinking. Uh, by that I mean communities that place ultimate value on reason and knowledge or pragmatism and utility or some combination of both. In simple terms, <laughs> for all my friends who aren't tracking with those words, um, these kinds of churches have as their highest value or agenda uh, information, which is doctrine, teaching, and truth, or what can be measured. Bums on seats, money in the bank, church growth. Now, we don't want to throw all these things out altogether. Um, anyone who's ever tried to do ministry in any form or even just read the book of Acts, right? You'll see that we need some of these things to a degree. But the problem is that in the kinds of church expressions I'm referring to, and maybe the ones you're referring to, Amy, we're not seeing these things applied in measure. We're seeing an expression of church in which these things, this pragmatism and utility or reason and information is so dominant and so heavy that they drown out all other healthy elements of church expression. 
And because the ecclesiologies or the theologies of church in these particular expressions are so narrow and and uh, without being too confrontational, they're tribalistic in their expressions, these people assume that it's not only tolerable but noble to resist anything that's outside their spectrum. In many instances, things like beauty, things like silence and space, things like communion and mutual confession and corporate prayer, things that make the church a people and not an event, are either sidelined in these contexts as secondary issues to be incorporated when possible or altogether absent from them. But the truth is that not all churches in the West struggle with this issue, Amy. <laughs> and you know that, right? I know you and I know you know that. Uh, you know, Some churches in the West may struggle with other issues in plenty, but not this particular one, right? Because there are churches in the West that are flooded with beauty and sacraments and symbolism and have expressions that center around a table and not a platform and expressions that make more than enough room for prayer and worship and abiding in God as a refuge from an already busy world and anxious society. And so that, so I think that as with the content of our message, the medium of our message, the vehicle of it, would be greatly strengthened if we just broadened our perspectives on who we could learn from. <laughs> See, we are a part of a family that has been around for thousands of years, not just hundreds. We have a rich heritage of Christ-embodied action that we can draw from if only we will recognize that it is ours. Christians, for thousands of years, have known how to gaze at the beauty of God Art and poetry and music and architecture throughout history testify to this, this exact reality, right? So many of the things that some parts of our Christian family have labeled faddish or new age or suspicious are anything but that. They are actually ancient and beautiful and profoundly, profoundly Christian. And so, Amy, uh, do we need more of Jesus in our preaching? Absolutely. And I think the question is, how do we get that? And my conviction is, is together with the whole church. Um, do we need more space to gaze at Jesus? Absolutely. In certain expressions of our family, um, our gatherings are so packed and full. They're, they're either what Eugene Peterson calls nothing more than preaching barns, or they look a lot like rock concerts. And I think there's, there's definitely space for us to learn from other parts of our family around how to create sacred spaces, spaces where heaven seems to touch earth for just a moment. And so with that said, let's move uh, from Psalm 27.4 into our final uh, signpost to inquire in his temple. Now, as always, be aware of your state of being in this space. Slow down and breathe deep. Let God find you in these words as I read them. One thing I desire, that will I seek after, 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing upon his beauty, inquiring in his temple. What do those words do to you as you hear them? Inquiring in his temple. What images do they stir up? Do they comfort you, challenge you, confuse you? What thoughts come to mind as you hear those words? What do you think God might be saying to you through them? As I sat with these words myself, a picture started forming in my mind. There was a dinner table, busy and joyful. You can imagine this with me now. And there were different kinds of food that filled this table, um, all delicious and steaming. <laughs> And, and people cut and scooped and served and passed plates and bowls to one another, dishing up their favorite things. And there were children at this table. They were happy in their innocence. On one side of the table, a mom leaved, leaned over her little boy and cut his steak into pieces. A dad helped a little girl blow on her hot roast potato. Adults asked the children about their day and and entertained with laughter and care the tall tales that, that came from these little people of craft projects and great adventures with friends in the playground. Apparently dragons really do exist and magic carpets aren't as hard to come by as you would imagine. The meal was happy and free. There was sincere affection here. Then the scene shifted. It was later in the evening, and the children had eaten their fill and began to get restless. After all, one can only talk about fantasy for so long. And the host of the party, taking in the subtle, unspoken cues of their adult counterparts, recognized that it was time in the evening to excuse the children and begin some adult conversation. Dragons and magic carpets and innocent fun were wonderful, of course, but there were serious things to discuss. Things that were difficult to talk about with the interruptions of sweet but naive hands in the air asking why or what does that mean in the middle of every sentence. Okay, children, the host said with a smile, you're excused from the table. The children, having looked to their parents for confirmation that this was in fact the case, they quickly shuffled off their chairs and ran into the living room where toys and books and games had been set out to keep them entertained. As their little voices settled down to a quiet hum in the background, the adults poured themselves another glass of wine and leaned forward with very serious faces to discuss the more important things of life. Things like politics and finances and the state of the world and God. Things that little children, sweet and innocent as they are, simply wouldn't understand. Now, I sat with this image for a while and I was just asking God what he meant to teach me through it. And suddenly I felt a thought rise to the front of my mind as if he was telling me 
something. And, and the thought was simply this. They think I'm one of those children. <laughs> I sat with this thought for a while. And as I did, what I, what I felt God was saying slowly settled in my heart. Think about it. How often do we treat Jesus like one of those children at the table? See, we make, we make space for his fantastical stories of an eternal kingdom and radical love and truly selfless living. We hear him speak with fire in his eyes about forgiveness and healing and miracles and surrender. He paints pictures for us, of beautiful pictures of, of godly sexuality and costly generosity. And as he speaks, we smile and nod. We don't begrudge Jesus for these things. In fact, we have a genuine and sincere affection for so much of it. We might even say we love Jesus and all that he is about, just as those adults at the table love their children. But that moment always comes, doesn't it, when the naivety of Jesus must be excused from the table so that the adults can have a real conversation. As his voice settles down to a faint hum in the background, we pour ourselves another glass of wine and lean in to resolve the serious issues of our lives. Life's filled with suits, boardrooms, Zoom meetings, traffic, errands, romance and budgets. Things like Tinder and Instagram and YouTube or babies and nappies and sleepless nights. Things that Jesus just wouldn't understand. We discuss news headlines, international relations, economic stability, and global warming with this kind of seriousness that assumes our own competence. We, create, we quote the great thinkers of our time. We, we pull out the latest research. We appeal to the gurus and leaders and heroes of our culture. Einstein, Elon, Oprah. We get Churchill and Jobs and Mandela involved and Mother Teresa and Guru Pitka and MLK. <laughs> and after lengthy adult discussions... We lean back with a sigh, half satisfied with ourselves, half frustrated by how confusing and difficult and complicated our world seems to be. And then we remember Jesus. Not that he was completely forgotten, of course, just as no good parent would completely forget their child. But we remember him and we, and we look across the room with a kind of sentimental affection and we long for the simpler times that the purity of his life that was possible. How wonderful it would be, we think to ourselves with a kind of uh, smirk on our face, if the world could be like that. And so we call Jesus back to the table for one more round of talk about things like faith and God and holiness. Uh, we want to lift our spirits, you know, and then we pack up to go home. If this doesn't paint the picture of how so many of us treat Jesus, I don't know what does. You know, in our last episode, friends, I, I asked you the question, is Jesus beautiful to you? Not just good or God or necessary, but beautiful. Does he capture your heart and fill your imagination with wonder? In this episode, my question is different, but no less important. And it is this. Is Jesus intelligent to you <laughs> is he intelligent to you really really think about that 
just how intelligent and brilliant and insightful and wise and innovative and capable do you actually think Jesus is? Now, if you're like so many of us, if you're like me on a lot of days, then your honest answer is probably not really. (laughs) You see, so many of us have been subtly and not so subtly trained to think of Jesus in, in these sentimental terms. We picture him through the lens of stained glass windows and static wooden crosses and abstract Bible stories. We have a kind of affection for Jesus, but very often we lack a necessary respect for Jesus. I'll say that one more time. So many of us have a kind of affection for Jesus, but we lack a necessary respect for Jesus. Yes, we, we want to hug him. We want to be hugged by him. But, but we've never really thought of sitting at his feet with a pen and paper in hand, taking note of every single word that comes out of his mouth. We don't see ourselves scribbling frantically like a university student on their first day, hanging on every idea that their lecturer is sharing when we think about Jesus. When it comes to it, we, we, we really don't actually believe that Jesus knows very much about real life. Now, of course, he's he's the main event on Sunday at church where people dress nicely and smile at one another. Of course, Jesus matters when we have uh, the luxury of time and soothing melodies of worship music flooding our senses. It's easy for preachers who themselves, (laughs) let's be honest, probably don't know very little about the world outside the four walls of their church building. It's easy for these preachers to tell us about lofty theological ideas in this context. But if we're honest, Man, I think most of us are just not convinced that Jesus would last a minute in the cutthroat world of business. I think, I think we imagine him sitting next to us, utterly confused as we type out complex coding at our tech company. Or we see him scratching his head as we prepare budgets for the upcoming board meeting or finalizing a syllabus for a new term. Think of any sphere of society apart from the church, the arts, politics, business, sciences, family, sport, education. I think most of us simply don't see Jesus as an authority in these places. Now, Jesus, we might be willing to concede, is is good therapy for struggling people. And even in some contexts, maybe a helpful mechanism for social cohesion in some senses. But, But we don't bring him to the table when we are talking about any of the key issues of our time or those that affect most of our lives. You see, when it comes to everything from race to sexuality to global politics to, to on the other end of the spectrum, grocery shopping, servicing the car, or how to be a family, we have excused Jesus from the table in these issues. When it comes to the core questions of our lives, most of us don't inquire of Jesus because most of us have believed two fundamental lies. Now listen carefully to this. The first lie that we have believed is that we assume competence on our part. Arrogantly, we think that we or another human being must know more about how to be human than the one who actually made us. And the second lie is that we assume ignorance on Jesus' part. We just don't think that Jesus is that intelligent. And in both cases, whether it's our own competence or his ignorance, in both cases, we are dead wrong. 
let's start with our assumed competence. When it comes to our assumed competence, the, the first thing we need to acknowledge is that this is nothing new. <laughs> In fact, as far as lies go, this is probably the oldest lie of them all. Okay, if, if we rewind all the way back, come with me, back to the beginning. Right in the beginning, we find Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Okay, and they're not alone in the garden. There is a serpent with them there. Now, this serpent here is a personification of evil. The serpent is the devil. It's the one that Jesus calls the father of lies in John 8, 44. And Jesus describes this devil as a murderer and one in whom there is no truth. Jesus describes this devil as a being who, when he lies, speaks his native language. So the devil is with Adam and Eve in the garden as they stand in front of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is a tree that God has forbidden Adam and Eve to eat from. And, and why has he forbidden them from eating from this tree, right? Well, it's kind of like when you were little and your mom told you not to touch the hot stove. Not so much because she was jealous or protective over her stove, but because she was jealous and protective over you. And so here they are, Adam and Eve, standing in front of this tree with the words of God in their minds. The words when God said, listen, guys, you, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But, but you've got to promise me, just, just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then on the other hand, they have the lies of the devil rising up in their hearts who's saying to them, die? <laughs> you, you will certainly not die. For God knows that when you eat from this tree, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God and you'll know good and evil. And so here's, here's Adam and Eve with these two ideas, these, these, these two concepts playing inside of them. One, truth, to eat from this tree is to die, and one, a lie. To eat is to become like God. And as they wrestle with this, as Eve wrestles with it, we get an, an insight into her internal world for a moment in Genesis chapter 6, um, in Genesis 3, verse 6, sorry. Uh, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. It was good and pleasing and promised to give her wisdom. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? And so she eats it and he eats it and there's a domino effect of rebellion. And in this moment, their eyes are opened and they see their own nakedness and shame drives them into hiding from God. They quite literally bite off more than they can chew. They, they touch the hot stove and get burnt. They ignore God. They seek to become God. And they die in a way that is far more tragic than any physical death. They lose, as Adam and Eve lose, their innocence that lets them walk in the garden with God. They lose the dependence that enables them to enjoy the full gift of his creation. Like Icarus, they sought to fly too close to the sun, melted their wings, and fell into the sea. This is a, this is a, it's a tragic but age-old story, friends, of our assumed competence. And we see it in the world all around us, right? As old as it is, it is present today. 
As people, we're not, we're not happy to submit ourselves to the ways of God. We insist that we know better than God. Or if not us, then someone else more in touch with reality. A scientist, a businessman, a politician, an activist, anyone but Jesus. It's pride through and through. And as we watch the rioting, corruption, and turmoil that fills our headlines every day, as we suffer under the growing ramifications of refusing to simply subdue creation and choosing instead to abuse it, it is increasingly obvious that our pride, our assumption of competence, is killing us in much the same way that it killed Adam and Eve and every other person throughout human history that thought people could replace God without consequence. (laughs) This is a lie. And it's killing us and we need another way. And I believe the other way is there if we will look for it. Think, for example, about Psalm 131, paraphrased so beautifully by Eugene Peterson. He says this, he says, God, I'm not trying to rule the roost. I don't want to be king of the mountain. I haven't meddled where I have no business or fantasized grandiose plans. I have kept my feet on the ground. I've cultivated a quiet heart like a baby content in its mother's arms my soul is a baby content wait israel for god wait with hope now hope always what if we lived like this what if we just for a second put down our microphone and picked up our pen What if we stopped scrolling through social media and started paging through our Bibles? What if we became people who were desperate to become like those we read about in Psalm 1? Those who thrill to God's Word, who chew on Scripture day and night and become a tree planted in Eden bearing fresh fruit every single month and never dropping a leaf and always in blossom. You see, our assumed competence is one of the fundamental lies that keeps us from true repentance. And the second lie is his assumed ignorance. The assumed ignorance of Jesus that we carry if not consciously then subconsciously right in in the way we act and live and who we go to for counsel the second lie keeps us from inquiring of god simply because we don't think god has anything to say but maybe if we can surrender the illusion of our assumed competence then maybe we can get past the deception of jesus's assumed ignorance Maybe as we, as we sit painfully in the vacuum that accepting our obvious weakness has created, we might be surprised, possibly with deep gratitude, to find that Jesus is not the insipid religious token we have always assumed he was. Right? Jesus is not just your homeboy. He's not just a bobblehead or a coffee cup or a t-shirt. <laughs> Jesus, as he seems to believe about himself, is Lord, and not just Lord over our tiny lives, but Lord, according to Philippians 2, of everything, everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And Jesus is not just Lord, friends, but Jesus is God. (laughs) 
the word at the beginning, according to John 1, who was with God and was God in the beginning, the one through whom all things were made and without whom nothing was made, the one in whom is life, a life that is the light of men, a light that shines in the darkness and cannot be overcome. Now, you might hear this and say, yes, 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 that's fine. I get you, Matt. I hear what you're saying, that Jesus is Lord and God. But just because he's Lord and God, why does that make him intelligent or brilliant or an expert on my life in every area? This is a good question. And I simply answer you with the words of Dallas Willard, who says this. (laughs) I love Uncle Dallas. He says, can you seriously imagine that Jesus could be Lord if he were not smart? If he were divine, would he be dumb or uninformed? Once you stop to think about it, How could he be what Christians take him to be in any other respect and not be the best informed and most intelligent person of all? The smartest person who ever lived bringing us the best information on the most important subjects. Here's what Dallas is saying. He's saying, who do you think designed the systems of creation that scientists have been studying for years under microscopes only to lose themselves in the depths of increasing complexity? Who do you think thought up the miracle that is the human body? A miracle that any medical doctor will tell you far surpasses human technology. Who do you think set up solar systems and galaxies and black holes and dark matter and all the things that make the smartest people who have ever lived scratch their heads In confusion, the Bible seems to think that Jesus did. And if the Bible is right, well then just how intelligent do you think Jesus must be? How brilliant exactly must the mind behind all creation be? And if that mind is so brilliant, then isn't it beyond ridiculous for you and I to assume that anything that we could fit into our comparatively tiny brains would be beyond the one who knit that brain together in the first place? It's insanity. Guys, Jesus is smart. He's really, really smart. He's so clever. Think about the temple story in Luke chapter 41 to 47 for a second. We we come into the story uh, where every year Jesus' parents, they they go up to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And uh, and one year when Jesus is 12 years old, they, they go to the festival in Jerusalem as usual. And after the celebration is over, they start uh, making their way back home to Nazareth. But Jesus stays behind in Jerusalem, okay? And his parents don't miss him at first because they assumed he, he was among the other tra- travelers, which <laughs> I think is great parenting. Anyway, uh, when he doesn't show up that evening, they start looking for him among relatives and friends. And when they can't find him, they go back to Jerusalem, where the festival was, uh, to search for him there. After three days of searching, okay? So this is four days now since Jesus has been lost. After three days of searching, they finally discover him in the temple. And who is he sitting with? Remember, this is 12-year-old Jesus. And he's sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And then the Bible says this, All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. All, including the religious teachers, including people that had given their whole life to study these things. And, and bear in mind that these were the top of the tops. These were the academic elite. So here's Jesus, 12 years old, 
amazing religious teachers with his questions at 12. What did you know when you were 12? <laughs> when I was 12, guys, I was playing with action figures. I was smashing He-Man on the floor. You with me? When 12 years old, what did you know at 12? At 12, Jesus is amazing. Religious leaders in the capital of Jerusalem. It's a big deal. It's like a, it's like a 12-year-old kid going into the most influential place in society, sitting down with the leaders of that place and rocking their worlds with his insight. That's how smart Jesus is. <laughs> it's crazy. And there's another story here. In John chapter 6, verse 60 to 69, Jesus has just finished telling people uh, something pretty intense. He's, he's telling them that if they want to follow him, they're going to have to drink his flesh, <laughs> uh, drink his blood and eat his flesh, Right? And uh, obviously, this statement upsets uh, all the people looking on. And actually, it costs Jesus some followers. Some of his disciples leave him. And, the, and as they do, they're grumbling. And then well, the thing they're saying is like, this is such a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And so after challenging them to accept his words, however offensive they may, may be, because they are full of the spirit and life, he then turns to his closest friends, the, the 12 disciples. And he asked them this question. He says, do you want to leave me too? Or in other translations, you don't want to leave me, do you? And I can imagine them considering this for a moment, considering everything that's going on. I can imagine the silence and them looking at some of the disciples, some of their friends who are now leaving Jesus because he's telling people to drink his blood and eat his flesh. And then after a moment, Simon Peter answers him and he says this. Listen carefully to this. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus is smart, friends. <laughs> He's really, really smart. Unfortunately, not everyone thinks so. See, we live in an age where every person with a cell phone is a preacher. Perhaps now more than ever, there are new winds of teaching springing up moment by moment. Or perhaps old winds with a new paint job, right? But, but many of these things are, are incredibly convincing. And in the midst of this all stands Jesus. And his words, though full of the Spirit and life, will almost certainly be offensive and, and hard. In a world that has eaten its fill at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, many people will leave Jesus, if not consciously, then unconsciously, as they worship in church on Sunday, but trust the message of the masses in every other area of their lives. The question for you is, what will you do? You see, when the Son of God looks at you and says, you don't want to leave me too, do you? How will you answer him? And please hear me. If your answer is, Oh, Matt, I believe in Jesus. I just want to say with all the love in my heart, that's no longer enough. And perhaps it never was. See, if we really want to repent unto godliness and the eternal kind of life that God longs to give us, then he demands that we dig a little bit deeper than just, I believe in Jesus. We've got to go beyond that to, to what do you believe about Jesus? That's a better question. Do you believe that, that he's your greatest desire? 
worth seeking with all of your heart? Is he is he your perfect home worth stopping to encounter in every moment? Is he beautiful beyond measure, capturing your attention and affection with every second spent gazing at all he is and all he has done? And is he your teacher, more intelligent than you could possibly comprehend, more informed, articulate, precise, perceptive than any person the world has ever known on every subject in all of life? These are the questions that lead us to repentance. And this is what it means to return. Now, as you ask them, you might, always, uh, you might not always like what you find, right? Because Jesus' teachings, as we've seen, are often hard to accept. But, but here's what I pray for you. I pray that you would stay anyway. Even when everybody else is leaving, even when your friends are leaving, even if your family are leaving, even if those who you thought were followers start running off after other gods because the teaching of Jesus is hard, I pray that you would stay anyway. I pray that your eyes would be open to see him as those in the temple did all those years ago, sitting around a 12-year-old boy amazed at his understanding. Or as Simon Peter did, standing before his rabbi declaring, You have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. I pray that next time you sit around the table, you would humble yourself before Jesus. Instead of excusing him from the table, put down your wine. And with it all your preconceived ideas about what it means to be human, pick up your pen and paper and listen for every word that comes from the mouth of God pray that you'd humble yourself before God and let the great teacher show you the way. I pray this for you and I pray this for me because this is what it means to return. Well, that's all from me for this series, friends. If you have any questions, please DM me on social media or email me by going to mattlewis.co.za and using the Ask Follower Anything space that we've set up for you there. As always, thanks for listening to the Follower Podcast. I hope this series, this series has, uh, has helped you. And if so, please like it, share it, subscribe, leave a review. These things help immensely to get the message out there. Uh, coming up, we're currently working on a new series here at Follower, and I'm very excited about, uh, about it. it. It's called How's the Water, uh, and uh, I'll hold back a little bit of information for now, but basically we're going to sit down with some fellow followers of Jesus. We're going to discuss some of the major cultural waters we're swimming in at the moment, and we're going to ask how we follow Jesus well in the midst of it all. Uh, that won't be coming out immediately, so there's going to be a bit of a break, but you can look forward to hearing it in the coming weeks so so look out for that on all social media platforms and until then please do get in touch if you have any questions or just want to connect about following jesus in the world today i'd love to chat to you thanks as always for listening in and we'll see you in the next episode